How good is it to have a choir in this service? Yeah. Come on. I love that. Apparently they're going to be here like every week. Am I, am I misstating that? Maybe. Most weeks. Feels like Easter. So yeah, come on. Well, good morning. My name's Ellis. If, uh, if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Great to have you with us uh, here in, in worship. Uh, earlier this year, I was getting some routine blood work done, and when I got the results back, there was a very alarming level of toxins in my liver. And according to WebMD, yes, I did go down the route of Googling my results before my doctor interpreted them. And I know I'm not the only one. Come on, we all do it. The most likely explanation for these high levels of liver toxins was that I had liver disease. So I panicked. I started double-checking that I'd been paying my life insurance premiums. Started writing a checklist of all the things I need to do to get my wife ready for my impending death. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. There's got to be something else going on. So I did more Googling, as you do. Thankfully, I found one study pertaining to young males like myself who did not ordinarily lift weights, but for the purpose of the study began lifting heavy weights. The toxin levels in their liver were then tested over the next 10 days, and they discovered that the toxins that the muscles of non-weightlifters produce in the early days of weightlifting cause the same results in blood work as liver disease. And the good news for me was... I have been really lazy for months and months and months and have not been lifting any weights. And seven days before the blood test, I started pumping iron. So I let my doc know. I said, please, please, please take that into account. Don't, don't send me to a specialist right away. And he did. He said, test again in two weeks. Don't lift weights between now and then. And two weeks later, the blood results came back perfectly normal. Whew. Yeah, okay, that's worthy of a clap. I felt that way. Sometimes... What appears at first glance to be reality is not the case. Sometimes there is a, a deeper truth hidden behind the presenting circumstances. And in today's passage from the life of Jesus as portrayed in Luke's gospel, we're going to see two instances where this is the case. Two ways in which the things that present themselves are actually masking a, a deeper, more hidden reality. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke here this morning. I'm going to share a message in, in the next 25 minutes that I hope is going to reveal God's truth to you, and that as a result, you might find revelation about what's going on in your life and circumstances, and that that might bring you peace and comfort. So we're in Luke 18. Grab your Bibles if you have them. Uh, feel free to turn there now, Luke chapter 18, or grab your Bible apps. It will be on the screens Two, uh, before we read, the, the Gospel of Luke is broadly arranged into four different chunks. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke over the last year. The first chunk of the Gospel of Luke is all about the, the birth narratives uh, surrounding Jesus' birth, John the Baptist's birth. The second chunk is all about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, calls his disciples, starts preaching, healing. The third chunk is about the journey of Jesus and his disciples towards Jerusalem. And the fourth and final chunk is the culmination of Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem with his death and his resurrection. We find ourselves at this point in our journey, right in that hinge point between the third and fourth sections of Luke. Jesus is just about to arrive 
in Jerusalem with his disciples. That's the context for the words that we're about to read. So we're in Luke 18, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this week I picked up a, a new book from the library. It's John Milton's Paradise Lost. Anyone ever read that book? would imagine not very many people. Yeah, it's a 350-year-old book. So it's actually a poem, an epic poem portraying a narrative surrounding Adam and Eve's fall from grace in the Garden of Eden. It's widely acknowledged as one of the greatest literary works of the English language. But here's the thing that amazes me the most about this book. The author, John Milton, who wrote this, this poem, which is like 300 pages long in my edition, he wrote this after he had gone blind. Here's how his uh, days would typically begin when he was writing Paradise Lost. He'd get up about 4 a.m., he'd have someone read the Hebrew Old Testament to him for about 30 minutes, and then he'd spend the next couple of hours just reflecting in silence before dictating what on a good morning would be 40 lines of poetry before breakfast. Isn't that nutty? See, blindness is a, a life-altering condition for most people, but not for John Milton. In fact, it was after he went blind that God opened his eyes to reveal to him, in poetic form, his good purposes for humankind through the fall. See, physical blindness doesn't necessitate spiritual blindness. That's what we see in our story today. We read a story about Jesus and a blind man, but actually... There's more blindness going on in this passage than just physical blindness. I see at least two more forms of blindness. But these are, these are not physical forms of blindness, but spiritual forms of blindness. And the thing that clued me into this was a comment Luke makes in verse 34 with reference to the disciples. Take a look. Luke writes, But they understood, as they, the, the twelve disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Luke is telling us, right before we have this story about a blind man, that the 12 disciples themselves were also blind, but not physically blind, 
rather spiritually blind. So in this passage, we've got Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Like I said, hinge point from the the third part to the fourth part of Luke's gospel. He's arriving in Jerusalem. He he pulls the 12 disciples aside, his his closest followers, and he he says to them, here's what's going to happen. Everything that's written about me in the Old Testament, I'm going to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now at this point, his disciples think they know who he is. Okay? They believe Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah was this prophesied king who would come to God's people. He would be a descendant of the great King David, and he would restore the kingdom of God to the people of God who were currently in occupation by the Romans. And so when Jesus says, verse 31, take a look, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man, that's how Jesus talks about himself, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. When Jesus says this, his disciples are thinking, finally, come on, Jesus, now's the time. You're the true king. You're the Messiah. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to overthrow the powers that be. You're going to sit on the throne, and you will reign in power and glory. That's what the disciples are thinking when Jesus says that. And while it's true that Jesus is going to overthrow the powers that be, he is going to sit on his throne, he's not going to do it in the way that the disciples expect. See, the disciples were expecting Jesus to come and conquer the political powers that be and to, to be victorious over the nations that were ruling over them. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament about that. A victorious and conquering king whom God would send to do just that. But Jesus says, following these comments, that there's a whole section of the Old Testament prophecies he's going to fulfill that the disciples were not expecting him to fulfill. You see, Jesus was not only the Messiah, God's chosen king for his people, but Jesus was also the suffering servant. You know, if you're reading the Bible in one year, I I know I've talked about that many times, Bible in one year with Nikki Gumbel, an app you can download if you want to get into reading the Bible daily. It's the easiest way to do that. If you're reading the Bible in one year, last week we read a number of prophecies in the book of Isaiah pertaining to a servant of the Lord who would suffer on behalf of God's people to bring them salvation, a suffering servant. And these are the prophecies that Jesus is about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says, verse 32 and 33. For he, that's the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus explains right here in plain terms what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And it doesn't sound anything like the disciples' expectations of what was going to take place. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, verse 34, Luke comments, the disciples didn't understand it at all. It was hidden from them. And here we come to the first form of spiritual blindness that we see in the reading from today. The disciples were blind to God's true purposes. The disciples could not see what God was going to accomplish through Jesus in Jerusalem. They heard Jesus say that he was going to suffer and die, and they couldn't understand, how on earth, Jesus, then, are you going to fulfill all of these prophecies about a conquering messianic king who will rule and reign over the nations? And yet, 
as we will discover, it was through suffering and death that the very things the disciples expected of Jesus were made possible. Jesus' moment of victory was in fact his moment of death. As the great missiologist Leslie Newbigin once wrote, the resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of a victory. In other words, the cross was not a defeat. The cross was Jesus's moment of victory. As Newbigin later writes, the king reigns from the tree. In other words, when Jesus was high and lifted up upon the cross, that was his moment of glory. That was when he was seated on the throne. That was when all peoples could see that he was God's chosen king to rule and reign over this earth. And yet the disciples were blind to this. They were blind to God's true purposes. They saw suffering and death as defeat, not victory. And sometimes I wonder if we do the same in our lives. I wonder if sometimes we view what what is going on in our life as defeat, when in fact it's the very moment when God is bringing about his victory. When we face challenges at, at work or at school, perhaps those challenges are not defeat, but the very thing God is going to use to bring about his victory in us. When we face challenges with with our children or or with our parents, perhaps that's not a failure, but it's the very place that God's going to bring about his triumph in us. Perhaps when we face marital or relational strife, that is not a setback, but it is the very situation in which God is going to manifest his prosperity in us. Our God uses the very worst of situations to bring about the very greatest of victories. But so often I think we're blind to this. Just like the disciples, it's, it's hidden from us. So often we cannot see what God sees. And we sang that song at the end of last week's service. When all I see is a battle, you see my victory. When all I see is a mountain, you see a mountain moved. So often we cannot see what God sees. We are blind to his purposes, just like the disciples. So that's the first form of spiritual blindness, but it's not the only one we read about in the passage that we're studying today. The second one comes in that next story about the blind man. The passage begins with Jesus drawing near to the city of Jericho. That's about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. And when he is coming along the road into the town, there is a blind man sat begging by the side of the road. Now, he's begging. What does he need? Money. That's why he's begging. His blindness is preventing him from working and earning for a living. And so he sits and begs by the side of the road. He needs money. Or so we think. The blind man hears a commotion. He says, what's going on? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And the blind man begins crying out. And he says, Jesus, son of David. Now, do you notice the difference between what the crowds call him and what the blind man calls Jesus? The crowds call him Jesus of Nazareth. He's just this guy, Yeshua, who comes from a town called Nazareth up in Galilee. 
but not the blind man. The blind man calls him Jesus, son of David. Not just any son of David. Right here, he is referring to that messianic king we just spoke about. What he's really saying is, this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one God has sent to us to remove the oppression from which we are under, to set us free. You see, the blind man, even though he is physically blind, he has eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is. But the crowds, although they are physically not blind, they can see physically. They are blind to who Jesus really is. So the blind man cries out, verse 38, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the crowd rebuke him. They say, be silent. Why, why would you want Jesus? You, you need money. Don't you know he doesn't have any money? He eats in other people's homes. He has three women who are bankrolling his ministry. You don't need Jesus. Shut up. But the blind man cries out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, everyone else thinks the blind man needs money, but the blind man knows what he really needs. What does the blind man say he needs? Mercy. This brings us to the second form of spiritual blindness that we see in this passage. First, we can be blind to God's true purposes. Second, we can be blind to our true poverty. See, the crowds don't see the blind man as anything more than a beggar. They see him as one who's in physical poverty. He needs money. And yet when the blind man calls out to Jesus, he doesn't ask for money. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, son of David, can you give me some money? Give me a meal? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He sees that what this true king of God's people has to give him. Most importantly, beyond all other things, is not something material, but rather something spiritual. His greatest need is mercy, not money. And we too, we too need mercy much more than we need money. So often we can be blind to our true poverty. Our greatest poverty is not material, but spiritual. Now think about it. When on that final day, we stand before King Jesus, seated on that great white throne of judgment, we're not going to go, oh, I wish I had more material possessions. I wish I had more money. I wish I had more stuff. That would save me right now. No. In that moment, we're going to see all of our sin laid bare before us, and we're going to go, God, I need mercy. And praise be to God that he has shown us that mercy in and through the person of his son, Jesus. Our true poverty is spiritual, not physical. Our true poverty is rooted in our rejection of God as king and our decision to go our own way. The Bible calls that sin. And as a result of our sin, we stand, every single one of us, condemned before God. We are all guilty. We all deserve the consequences of our wrongdoing. But thanks be to God, we do not receive the consequences of our wrongdoing. 
When Jesus said earlier on that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, that he would be shamefully treated, that he would be spit upon, that he would be flogged, and he would be killed, that was what we deserved, and yet Jesus took our place. That is God's mercy for us. God does not give us what we deserve, and instead Jesus gets what we alone deserved. Our true poverty is our sin, and God has provided the solution for us in the person of Jesus. And yet we're so often blind to this. We just miss it. We're so focused on our own material needs or wants or desires that we we miss the fact that God has already met our greatest spiritual need, our greatest spiritual desire in the person of his son. You know, often I think that these, this, this kind of tension, this, this forgetfulness, this blindness, I, I think it comes out in my life in my desire for, for more stuff. Somehow I bought the lie of the marketers that if I, if I just had one more thing, I would be happy. If I just had one more possession, whatever it is I'm fixated on right now, that that poverty I feel inside of me would go away. And I know it's not just true of me, because I see you all in Costco. (laughs) It's a lie. Yes, if we gratify the desires of our flesh and, and take that material thing that we want, yes, we'll be happy for a moment, but then that poverty that is inside of us will come back. Our greatest need is not for material goods or possessions. Our greatest need is for mercy, the mercy of God for us. And he has already given that to us. So, we can be blind to God's true purposes. We can be blind to our true poverty. But what should we do about it? Well, our passage finishes with Jesus turning to the blind man and asking him a question that I believe he asks every single one of us. Jesus asks him, verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? Every time we turn to God in prayer, we are in effect answering that question. Every time we cry out to God, we're telling him, here's what I want you to do for me. Last week, Pastor Mark likened God to Alexa, interesting analogy. But I get it. God is constantly listening, constantly seeking to address and fulfill our wants or our needs. That's what Jesus means when he says, what do you want me to do for you? He's waiting. He's longing for our response. And I wonder if the response of the blind man could offer us a model prayer that we should use in our own lives. Jesus says, verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Lord, let me see. See, what the blind man didn't ask for was money. In fact, by the blind man asking for sight, he would lose his only stream of income. People only gave money to him because he was blind. They took pity on him. Now, when Jesus heals him, he can see. He's got to go get a job. But I think his prayer can serve as a model for us because I think he understands. He understands. Just like the crowd didn't understand who Jesus was, he understands who Jesus is. He understands a deeper 
spiritual truth. And I wonder if this prayer, Lord, let me see, is what God is asking us to pray this week. Lord, let me see your true purposes. Lord, let me see my true poverty. Let's look at that, those two prayers in turn. Lord, let me see your true purposes. What does it look like to pray that? Well, my mother growing up, whenever she would face hardship or difficulty of any kind, her prayer would be to God, God, show me what's going on here. Show me what you're trying to teach me. Lord, reveal to me your true purposes. Let me see your true purposes. One time she got a speeding ticket, which is a little bit more serious in the UK than in the US, and she prayed and she asked God, what are you trying to reveal to me? Let me see your true purposes. And she felt God respond and say, you're going through life too fast. You're trying to cram too much into too little a period of time. You're going too fast. And she took that as a warning. I need to slow down. She said, Lord, let me see your true purposes. You know, when we are faced with trials or difficulties, with sickness, heartache, financial worries, death, or, or anything else. Yes, we should ask God to intervene. We should ask him to act. We should ask him to bring about healing and restoration and freedom and provision and comfort. But at the same time, we should also turn to God and say, Lord, let me see your true purposes. What is it that you're trying to teach me in this? Now, that is a hard prayer to pray. When you are deep in the midst of pain and hurt and suffering, that is a hard prayer to pray, to say, Lord, let me see your true purposes in this. When all you want to do is cry out, Lord, bring me relief, to say, Lord, let me see, That's, that is hard. But that kind of prayer builds our faith, builds our faith in God no end. It opens our eyes to the reality that, that there's something bigger going on here, and that our God does work all things together for good for those who love him. And you might be in that moment right now where you are facing something so painful, so hurtful, that you cannot possibly understand how could God use this. But I would say to you, hold on and pray that prayer. Lord, let me see your true purposes. Say, Lord, yes, I'm in pain. Yes, I want you to give me relief from the pain. But in the same way that you use the death of Jesus to bring about the greatest victory, I believe that you can use this moment in my life to bring about victory. And so I pray, Lord, let me see your true purposes. Give me hope. Give me faith that you will come through. So that's the first prayer. Lord, let me see your true purposes. And the second prayer, Lord, let me see my true poverty. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that my prayers can become like a laundry list of needs. God, would you do this? God, would you come through for that person? God, would you provide here? God, would you bring peace and comfort there? And I don't know about you, but I sometimes forget that God has already met my deepest need, my greatest poverty in and through the person of his son, Jesus. And that's the power of asking God to reveal to us our true poverty. That's the power of the prayer. Lord, let me see my true poverty. Because in that moment, we see our need for mercy, and we see that God has met that need. You know, every week in our worship services, 
we pray a prayer of confession. Pastor Gunnar led us in a prayer of confession earlier. We confess our sin to God and our need for His mercy. But here's the thing. If we only pray that prayer, if we only go to God and confess our need for His mercy once a week, we're missing out because we need His mercy every single day. We need to know every single day of the depth and the riches of the love and the mercy of God for us because every single day we fall short. And so when we take time daily to ask God to reveal our sin to us and to confess it back to Him, we are reminded of the greatness of His mercy and love for us. As the late Tim Keller once said, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. That's what that prayer does, is it cements that truth and reality into us. Our greatest need is for mercy. And out of God's love, He has already met us. He has already provided for us. He has already given us our greatest need. So, we can be blind to God's true purposes. We can be blind to the fact that God is at work, even in the hard stuff, even in the circumstances we can't possibly believe He could be at work in. Even in the midst of death, God is at work bringing about His good purposes. So we can be blind to God's true purposes. We can be blind to our true poverty. We can be blinded by the materialism of the society in which we live in to believe that we can meet our own needs when in fact our deepest need is for mercy. And praise be to God, he's already met that. And you don't have to pay for it. It's free. And so, in light of this, in light of our blindness in these two areas, let us respond to the request of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? In the same way that the blind man responded, Lord, let me see. Let me see your true purposes. Give me faith. Give me hope. Give me belief to see how you are at work bringing about all circumstances for your glory and my good. And Lord, let me see my true poverty. Let me see the, the reality that I'm being sold a lie. And that actually my greatest need, the need for mercy, has already been met in abundance. And may I come to know the depth of your love for me. Lord, let me see your true purposes. Lord, let me see my true poverty. I wonder what it would look like if we prayed those two prayers every day this week. What would that do to your faith in God? What would that do to your interactions with others in your life? How would that impact you if God were to reveal to you every single day, I love you, I have good purposes for you, I am at work in the midst of this, and I've already met your greatest need. Lord, let me see your true purposes. Lord, let me see my true poverty. Let's pray those prayers right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, let me see your true purposes. Lord, you are sovereign. You are above all. You are at work in all things. You are taking the mess of this world and you are turning it into something beautiful. And Lord, where, where that mess is present in our lives, I pray that you would reveal to us how you are at work, what it is that you are teaching us. So Lord, we pray, let me see your true purposes. Just take a moment. 
Maybe the Lord wants to speak to you right now. Lord, build our faith, build our hope in you, that you are good and you have good purposes for your people. And Lord, we also pray, let us see our true poverty. Lord, convict us of of any lies we've been believing about how we can meet our needs. Lord, reveal to us the depth of your love for us. That your mercy has been poured out upon us. So Lord, if there's anything you want to reveal to us now, we pray, Lord, let me see my true poverty. Just take a moment and wait on the Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus was mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed for us on our behalf. That is what we deserve, Lord. That's our true poverty. And yet, in your great mercy, you took our place. So this morning, we choose to rest in your love for us. We choose to praise you for the amazing, abundant mercy and grace that you have shown for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise the Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.